Hello and welcome to Let's Jaws for a Minute, the podcast which takes a deep dive into Steven Spielberg's 1975 classic film Jaws, minute by minute or thereabouts. I'm Sarah Budry. And I'm MJ Smith. And if I sound different this week, I'm having to record from my phone because my computer has been paperweight for going on three weeks now. Um, but should be all right. Uh, any audio issues that you hear there during this episode are because of that. Um, yeah, we don't have a guest this week, so let's just jump right into the scene, which takes place uh, one hour, 44 minutes and five seconds through one hour, 45 minutes and 43 seconds. It's a total of a minute and 38 seconds. Um, these are based on the Blu-ray. I know we have mentioned that before, and it does seem to line up with Netflix. Because of my broken computer, I was watching on a different app. And it did not line up, so uh, your mileage may vary, I suppose. Um, but that is the official timestamp. I confirmed it on on the app I normally use. I downloaded it onto my phone, and it does line up. So the app I was using, um, which I will not promote for free on here, but rhymes with schmoochmoob, um, is not a good platform for lining up uh, this uh, timeline. So... Keep that in mind. Um, <laughs> in this scene, the shark is pulling the boat again, which we've seen, but the 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 barrels are tied off on the cleats. In last week's scene, Hooper or Hooper Quint has just launched a harpoon into its chin. Uh, do sharks have chins? It's underside. <laughs> I guess. <laughs> yeah, I think. Like, I mean, you're not going to see a shark with a goatee or a soul patch or anything, but um... I wish. Uh... Yeah. It's one cool shark. Um... <laughs> Can't even get through the episode description today, huh? Um... <laughs> so uh, the 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 shark is pulling the 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 barrels and subsequently the boat and. Quint gets very concerned that he's going to pull uh, the transom off, which is apparently the flat piece of wood that makes up the stern of the boat. Uh, shout out to Google for that information. And uh, he, t he keeps telling like Brody and Hooper to untie the cleats, but it's too tight. The knots they've tied have, have tightened up because of the pressure that the, the shark is using to pull on the boat. So Quint goes to get a machete to cut the line while Brody and Hooper hold the rope back um, to give it any sort of slack so that it doesn't pull off uh, this piece of wood. That would really kind of be disastrous for the orca. Um, but while that's happening, there's also a bunch of water uh, flooding into, I believe, the engine. Um, and Quint comes to slice the, the, the rope and both of the cleats just fly off the back of the boat and um then the barrels pop up in in the in the middle of the ocean and quint says that there's no way he can stay down with three barrels on him and then brody says yeah but what about us we're gonna slink <laughs> and quint tells hooper to get the pump and has brody help uh hooper pump out the 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 water that has started to to flood the boat and that's uh, that's where we end this week's scene. Um, we end it before a very cool shot of the machete, which we will get to next week. Um, so if you were looking for that discussion, 
tune in next week. Um, <laughs> but Sarah, what did you notice about this scene? Yeah, I'm very sorry for cutting it. Uh, in my head, I had like the shot of the machete was like the last bit of this. And I checked that timestamp so many times when I was watching it today and was like, no, nope, I really, uh, I really did that. I really left it to next week. But we might have some overlap with that bit. And that's fine. Um, but yeah, this moment is very dramatic. There's this is the first thing in my notes, and it's bold and underlined, because there's a lot of stuff happening in this and a lot of moving pieces as well and then you've got the the problem with the the ropes at the back and i guess shout out to brody and hooper for so successfully tying these knots on that they're they're unable to get them off so well done they have passed their basic seamanship i believe um and you've got so you've got that sort of struggle at the back and there's lots of shouting and overlapping uh talking between the three characters we're sort of not really sure who is saying what and then you've obviously got the water coming in uh there's movement with the barrels as well one of them smashes into the glass and then it one swings past Brody's head so forcefully it knocks his glasses off um yeah. and it's a real like near miss as well like I must have watched that bit like a dozen times because I just wanted to see how close it gets to his head and it's pretty close so <laughs> it's a great uh it's a great near miss moment and there's just sort of like a lot of things happening there's a lot of great stuff obviously with uh with quint and the the machete and we'll get onto that and uh a new favorite shot that i have as well uh that we'll get to but yeah the, the first thing i guess was just the the drama of this scene and how many moving pieces there are i just thought was really quite excellent um i don't think that this is a moment that people necessarily pick out as being one of the most dramatic in the film but this kind of whole you know the last couple of bits that we've spoken about and and this week and next and maybe even the following as well like until they sort of get that moment where they decide that Hooper's going to go down in the cage it's really pretty full-on in terms of in terms mm -hmm. of action and the editing is great and very pacey and very quick and it's you sort of think about the you know the the chase of the shark or the moments where the shark is more involved in terms of being sort of the big moments of drama or action in this back half but just these sort of bits where they're just struggling just battling with this shark and battling the the orca and the limitations of that as well i just think are so great so well put together yeah, um, I mean, say it with me, folks. We've said it a million times. Jaws is a horror movie. Um, <laughs> this is one of... The, I don't think I've ever registered that this is a scary scene <laughs> um, until I watched it out of context, uh, or in extreme context, I suppose. And... It's super scary. <laughs> um, it feels a lot like a slasher movie, which I know I keep something. I, I keep I keep saying, and uh, it really feels like this is the you know this is the moment before the climax when they're headed to the final showdown and they're you know the the killers in the house and now it's it's chasing them around like I. I think one of the big talks of the town at the time of our recording this is the new Scream movie, uh, Five Cream. I watched all, f well, I've seen all five now at this point uh, at time of recording. And 
there's a lot of moments that you could compare to this in the climaxes of all five of those movies. And um, it, it just the chaos and confusion of the, you know, scary, unknowable killer charging towards you or lumbering towards you at any point uh, is, is what makes those films scary. And it's what makes this scene scary because it's full of chaos. It's full of confusion. It's full of terror. They're worried that the shark is going to either make it to the boat to eat them or pull off the transom of the boat and thus sink it, which puts them directly where the shark lives. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, this is, this is their last line of defense against being in the water. And it is very rapidly eroding and they are doing everything in their power to, uh, to salvage that. Um, and it, this scene I think does a great job of showing that desperation, that determination and, uh, the, the sort of fear driven, um, man versus nature, uh, story that they're really telling in the back is specifically in the back half of the film. Like this is a very big culmination of everything that the movie has been kind of leading to, which makes sense. We've, we've only got 15 minutes left of the thing. Um, but it's, it's rapidly ramping up to the big final showdown between it. And, um, this scene through honestly, not a lot uh really conveys that there's it's it's honestly it's mainly done in the sound design mm-hmm. mm. yeah there's i i didn't if you struggle as much as i do in this scene and trying to pick out like who is saying what but also i don't think it mm-hmm. matters because <laughs> it's just noise <laughs> yeah yeah uh i definitely turn the subtitles on uh earlier than i usually do because i try to watch it with no subtitles at first, maybe a couple times just to see what I can pick out with my weird audio engineer hearing. And then uh, I'll turn the subtitles on and watch it at least once uh, with the sound to, uh, to see what I can pick out. And here I was like, all right, I got to turn the subtitles on now. I, like, <laughs> I, I really can't understand what anyone's saying. And uh which is great because it's like it's all like super loud waves which like is it it, it, that's like a sound motif throughout the entire film when the shark is really like Mm. angling people um (laughs) the the waves get turned up to 11 Mm -hmm. and uh here is no exception and it's it it sucks man i i don't like that noise for some reason i don't mind it at the ocean i don't mind being in the ocean but for some reason in this movie like it's really grating and it's really, it's really annoying, but that's a feature, not a bug. Like I am, I love that it annoys me as much as it does because that's good sound design. It's supposed to unnerve me. The scene is supposed to make me feel uncomfortable. Mm -hmm. And it does because that ocean is so loud and it's the, I think it's the highs in the mix for me. Like it just really kind of hurts my ears sometimes. Mm -hmm. And then you get the confusion and the chaos of everyone talking and yelling at once and I think Hooper and Quint are doing the majority of the yelling here. Mm-hmm. Um, but there are a lot of moments uh, where you can't tell which one of them it is. 
And uh, yeah, I mean, like you said, it doesn't matter. It just matters that like we've seen them performing at this point and they've been doing a pretty good job. And now they're quite literally on the rips. Hmm. Yeah, it's the the sound design in this bit in particular. And, and you mentioned the waves. It's just it's very overwhelming and uh-huh. it's meant to be. It's meant to be chaotic and loud and intense. And I really can't get past this idea of like this bit in particular just being like the slasher film final act 101 <laughs> you're you're increasing yeah. the you're increasing the tension that the threat or the killer is getting closer and closer and is also outsmarting the the protagonist as well something we mentioned in last week's episode and you've also got i think in in the three characters what you see in quite a lot, and this is with my slim knowledge of slasher films, but I have watched some horror films in the last two days, so I feel very qualified to talk about this. Um, <laughs> it, when, you, when you're down to sort of like the last like few survivors, like you tend to have that person who is just resigned to their fate, kind of resigned to what's going to happen. And that to me is Brody in this scene because he even says, we're going to sink, aren't we? <laughs> so he's just mm-hmm. kind of like, this is it this is how i meet my maker this is how it's this is how it's going to end for for poor brody and then you've you've got quint who is just still locked into battle with the with the shark and is the things he's saying as well is wild i wrote down some of them he's like um he's almost like goading the shark he's kind of like go on then pull like pull your bloody heart out pull till your back breaks and all this sort of thing like he is basically saying like come and you know come and get me or like you think you're so tough like let's see what you've got and i feel like you always see that kind of cocky character in a slasher film as well and inevitably they are usually the one who dies um hooper i'm a bit more not sort of sure where where he fits in because the subtitles are telling me something very different to what the script is telling me that hooper says uh the script is telling me that hooper is like get the axe (laughs) and i never once heard him say that in the in the film so i think i mean i i really liked a bit where hooper is just like it's impossible it's impossible like he is this is perhaps like the most like vocal he is he has been in terms of this being difficult and this being a struggle and he is a man who has the knowledge of sharks and the sort of expertise in that area but like perhaps sort of lacking the the physical prowess or expertise to to cope or deal with this particular shark so he is just kind of he's almost the sort of we would expect brody to be that one who is just like hysterical almost like yelling just like we've got to do something you know right now that you would almost have expected past brody to have to have been in that role but yeah, it's just, it's interesting to think about. And I think that, I mean, we've said this before, but anyone who's like Jaws isn't a horror film, I would like to tell you respectfully that you're wrong. <laughs> super wrong. You're super wrong. Um, <laughs> I, well, and, and I think that Hooper's borderline cynicism in the scene of it's impossible, it's impossible, is mm. arguably one of the scariest parts of this. Right. Because remember... He sailed in the America's Cup. Like, he's used to rough waters and having to adjust these things on the fly. Mm-hmm. And he's saying, hey, 
this is hopeless. Like, he wears that America's Cup participation as a badge of honor, and he's resigned to, like, I'm in over my head on this Mm. Um, in addition to shark knowledge. That said, I do love Quint yelling, I hope your back breaks to the shark. (laughs) It's so... Like, I don't know. It's just, it really shocked me when I, because I heard it in the, in the, in the mix. I saw it on the subtitles and then I like read it in the script as well. And I'm like, yeah, he really does. He really does say that. It's it's almost meaner than wanting the shark to die. Like. Yeah. (laughs) I hope your back breaks. It's like. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it's a it's a really good line and I, I just love that like I don't know if that was in the script for him to say or if Shaw came up with that like just kind of you know yo ho ho in a bottle of rumming around again. Mm. Uh you know because it seems like in these moments I feel like I feel like Shaw himself kind of played around um and they kind of just kind of gave him the the freedom to do that. I, like, you know, when, when, when we first met Alf on the Orca, I feel like all the pirate lingo that he's singing about just feels like Robert Shaw, like, hey, I'm going to try something. Mm-hmm. And here it kind of feels like a, another moment where he could play around like that. And I really love that he <laughs> he gets into the character and thinks like, hey, what what would someone who's this angry at sharks say? And uh, he settles on, I hope your back breaks. <laughs> yeah, it's there's a great moment in this as well. I just was trying to uh, move ahead and find it, but it's right before Quint goes to get the, the machete that he sort of like lifts his hands up to his head. And it's just like, it's, real brief and it's hard to see just because the water is like splashing around so much but he seems to have just like a very brief moment of like what the hell am I gonna do in this (laughs) in this situation but it goes unnoticed to the other characters because they're obviously so busy and just trying to make sure that this shark doesn't rip this piece of the boat off which as you said would be disastrous um but it's like he's he's just sort of I don't know trying to like gather his thoughts maybe or like he what he is saying because this whole stuff about you know I hope it you know breaks your back like go on then pull your son of a bitch and all the rest of it like he he it is this sort of like threat towards the towards the shark or trying to be like bigger and louder and scarier and and threaten the shark but then he just has this moment where like the chaos around him where he just kind of like puts his hands to his head and it's just it's real quick and real subtle but i just i really like that as sort of inserted in the midst of the the chaos as he's just like almost you know trying to well i guess trying to think about what course of action to take next and, and realizing that you know what they're trying to do in in loosen the ropes is not is not going to work but then obviously he goes off and he gets the machete and i think it's a very very clever bit of editing because it tricks me uh i think i amended the notes before i <laughs> before you got into them because i had to share them with you but i i had it down as quint goes in to grab the machete and he cuts the ropes loose 
he does not mm-hmm. that mm-hmm. blade does not yeah. touch those ropes but it's again great work uh editing work from Werner Fields because he has the machete he's holding it aloft like he is about to strike the ropes and then you see the the ropes sort of like pinging off the back of the boat so you just I don't know my brain just put two and two together and was like he cuts the rope but he doesn't because then the next shot immediately he is like still in the same position with the machete still Mm -hmm. raised so even after all of this you know this yelling at the shark this sort of trying to trying to assert his dominance i guess over over the shark and sort of saying and yelling all the stuff that he is and and then figuring out what he needs to do that moment of sort of pause and being like okay get the machete i need to do something more drastic here but he doesn't get to he doesn't get to see it through so the shark still has like one up on him and we kind of see things really start to spiral for quint in the next few scenes where he is just like deranged like the way i the bit i'm thinking of is when he is like singing farewell in the dubit he is like it's mm. maniacal the way that he is the way that he is singing it and he's really like not listening to reason from the other two at all and it's just like this this shark is playing mind games with quint <laughs> with quint now and like even though he has gone to you know get get the weapon and it's it's similar that shot of him holding it aloft is similar to when he goes to get the the baseball bat as well and we we talked a lot about the psycho parallels with that um but that he did you know the the bat met the target and this time the machete doesn't which is why i think that shot of the machete being just like plunged into the side of the orca is so great because he i mean he's like well i gotta put (laughs) gotta put this knife somewhere and it's a it's a really great shot anyway and we'll probably talk about it more next week but this frustration that Quint is feeling, I think is really, really clear. And just also this sense of this shark is really, it's really doing a number on him. It's really outwitting him and he's finding that incredibly frustrating. Yeah. I, so you said a lot there that I want to touch on the, the first thing (laughs) is this is a weird comparison, but what is it? What is MJ talking about jaws? If not a weird comparison, (laughs) Uh, persevering. (laughs) so it is another slasher movie it's a sleepaway camp which is uh famous or infamous depending on your perspective i suppose and uh this uh, from what i remember this does not happen in a climactic moment of the film that just goes to show because it's a it's sleepaway camp is a slasher movie that takes place at a summer camp for teenagers so it just shows like you know how teenagers just like talk crap to each other all the time. I think it's during a baseball game. Let me see. Um, yeah, it's during a baseball game and, uh, this guy steps up to the plate and he says, eat shit, eat shit and die, Ricky. And Ricky's (laughs) response is, Ricky's response is eat shit and live, Bill. And that's how this feels. Uh, because it would be way worse to eat shit and live because then you would still be tasting shit. And it feels like the shark, obviously uh, nonverbal except for being the ability to roar, uh, is, you know, his version of taunting them is pulling on the boat and 
Quint's comeback of Eat Shit and Live is I hope your back breaks. <laughs> um, like, it feels very, like, child childhood haunting mm. in that moment because it's all he can do. Um, the other thing is him putting his hands to his head. He's looking out at the shark to see how close it is. He's, like, mm. covering his eye. Mm. Uh to to do that um so he he's i think he's just shielding the sun to see like hey how much time do i actually have here before this is a real problem Mm -hmm. um and then the machete i mean it's super important right like he takes this machete to his death Mm -hmm. and Mm -hmm. i think i think even this moment where the machete is not the thing to stop the shark is a little bit of foreshadowing because when Quint dies, not even his machete is strong enough to stop the shark. Like he does not, there is not a death exchange that occurs when Quint dies. The shark is still alive after he eats Quint. Mm. And even though it's been stabbed in the head multiple times by this machete, uh, it still is not the thing to take the shark down. So I think this is sort of the beginning of that of like, this machete offers maybe a little bit of hope, but where it ends up ultimately not really. Mm. Yeah, that's a really interesting point, actually, because even though in this bit that, you know, the purpose, the machete in this instance wasn't, you know, it to be put into the shark, but he had gone to get the machete to cut the ropes and he didn't get to do he didn't get to do that he didn't get the chance to do it because the ropes just pinged off so it's this idea of yeah like you said that that not being the thing that is able to finish off the shark because you get it in in this scene where it's like even though he has that weapon it doesn't do the thing that he intended it for when he went to get it hope that makes sense <laughs> yep mm. Yeah, I mean, it's it's just this little thing that shows, like, hey, they are powerless against this, it seems. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I like that idea as well of the, the shark, like, taunting them. It's just this kind of, like, you get a real sort of sense of, like, tit for tat, where the shark is just, like, mm. listening and playing with them. And... yeah one-upping them in terms of you know physical sense but also like mind games as well because i think it's like it's right around the time when quint says you know he can't he can't stay down with three barrels on him and then like the barrels pop up and it's just like quint is adamant that this you know that three barrels is going to be the thing that that finishes the shark off and it's still like it's still going it's like they have that brief sort of moment of pause and you know they they still can't they still haven't done it they still haven't completed the job or whatever but quint is just you know he won't stay he won't be able to stay down now surely he can't and then like you see them pop up and it's just like <laughs> yeah uh that moment's really funny mm-hmm. um I, I love I, we had to have talked about this on the on the show 
where uh, horror and comedy are two sides of the same coin. Mm -hmm. And it's both about kind of sneaking around your higher uh, thinking abilities and just like tapping into something primal and visceral in you. Um, But ones to elicit a laugh and ones to elicit, you know, fear or a scream. And uh, I think that's why horror comedies work so well. Like they're, that's a massive subgenre of, Mm. you know, uh, of horror. And, why people like, you know, Sam Raimi and once again, back to Scream, like some of those are horror comedies mm-hmm. and Wes Craven and, and people like that, they have such, they're looked at as sort of these legends within the genre because they blend those two elements very, very nicely. And while I don't think Jaws is a horror comedy at all, really, <laughs> there's a lot of funny stuff that happens in Jaws and this one comes on the heels of one of the scariest moments in the back half of the film. Mm. And yeah, they're just, they're just, it, the, everything's calmed down. They're staring out at, <laughs> at the ocean. And then out of nowhere, here comes these three barrels. And it's just like this, like this big middle flipper to the, uh, to the three guys on the boat. Um, mm-hmm. Where it's like, Hey guys, no, I'm not. This is not. This is not happening. Also, fuck your barrels. Um, it's, it's just very, it's very funny. Like, it feels like sarcasm from the shark. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like the shark is like, uh, you, know, you know, three barrels is going to keep me down, is it? And it's like, nope. <laughs> yeah. I so this actually brings us very neatly onto maybe what is one of my new favorite shots in the film. Um, hopefully you can <laughs> with the timestamp issues, but I will mention the timestamp anyway. So it is a right around this bit. So like one hour 45, 22, 23 ish. So it's when they are sat, they kind of like they slump down as well, like they're they're stood. And then the sort of yeah. exhaustion and everything just kicks in and they sort of like slump down and the barrels pop up. And what I noticed is that the the barrels or the positioning of them, they're basically positioned exactly where the characters are. So mm. bear with me. But obviously three barrels, three guys, it's the same number. But the, the, the barrel at the back and Brody is positioned sort of like furthest back. Hooper mm-hmm. is closer than Brody is, but not as close as, as Quint is. Um, and it's exactly the same with the barrels as well. And then you sort of see the barrels like come together in more of a line. And then the very next shot, even though the characters, well, I think Brody has come forward actually, but it is then the characters like in a line. They're not sort of quite stood like one behind the other because. Yeah, they're be more weird. of a triangle. Right. Yeah. But the, the, in sort of like the shot, at least, like, you know, you've got Brody on the left. Cooper in the middle and then and then Quint on the right but the way it's sort of like lined up I just thought it was interesting to to notice this sort of like mirroring of the three of them and, and we've spoken throughout I think about the the significance of, of three and how often in the film there are shots that that feature three people in them obviously these these are our three core characters that we spend the bulk of the film with as well I don't think they get another barrel into the shark now. So so three is mm-hmm. the sort of like, you know, the, the final number of barrels that get into the shark. So this idea of 
there being sort of a, a link, I guess. So I, the sort of thing I wrote down in my notes is it's like there's three barrels, there's three guys, and it's like the level, the the playing field is now level between like shark and yeah. them. So the same number of barrels are on the shark as as people there are. So all of this stuff that we're picking up about how you know Quint is is kind of goading the the shark and and mocking it almost and hurling out all this abuse, and yet the shark is like, oh yeah, you know. <laughs> how about this sort of thing and and trying to outsmart them kind of plays into that idea as well it's just like even at this point like late into the film the playing field is still very very level i would say that they're at a a disadvantage because the boat is starting to fill with water but also it's it's like what am i trying to say the the shark has got three barrels in it and quint repeatedly says like the shark can't you know not with three barrels he can't stay down he can't stay down with three barrels and then brody in response to that says we're gonna sink aren't we and it's this mm-hmm. idea of like it's either going to be them or the it's either going to be them on the shark so even at this point you get this sense of the playing field being level and i just think that's really interesting to to think about and this i haven't notice that sort of like shot of like how perfectly the their positions on the boat are lined up with where the barrels are as well but i just thought it was really neat <laughs> uh yeah that's um that's really really good i didn't notice that at all but mm-hmm. i think you're right and like I think the significance of the barrels also being yellow is that it's sort of like it could come for any one of them. Like none of them are safe, Mm -hmm. right? There's one, there's one yellow object for each of them. Mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. That's a, that's really good insight. (laughs) Um, (laughs) Why thank you. (laughs) Yeah. And I do like the, the, Brody immediately, like, for as much work as he's done in this short amount of time to face his fears, he's immediately like, oh, we're headed in that direction, aren't we? Like, this mm. this is going to end up in the water. Mm. It isn't, like, as panicked as you would expect to hear from, from Brody at this yeah. point. So I think we are seeing that growth in him as a character. And, I mean, I mentioned earlier that there's always that kind of, like, character in a horror film that is just sort of like the resignation of like what is gonna is one what is gonna happen to them he says it quite matter of fact (laughs) he's just like we're gonna sink aren't we (laughs) like it's just like yep this is this is what's happening now you are correct (laughs) um did you have anything else for this scene hmm I mean, this feels like it's going to be, end up being a, a very short episode, but also you can't <laughs> mine too much out of a scene where I think we've we've kind of covered everything, but maybe just to, to sort of quickly talk about the the editing and the, the shot construction in this mm-hmm. scene as well. I mean, I think that that we've spoken about it, but just that taking that brief moment to pause and it's like the the quietness of that moment is almost deafening given how loud everything was that that came before mm. it the the crashing of the waves and the yelling and just taking that like brief like pause moment where they all just kind of like sit down and it doesn't give you long but i just think that this scene in particular is so well paced and so well constructed 
I just, it's, I think it's brilliant. I mean, <laughs> it's me every week just being like, this is great. Jaws is great, but this is a really, really great moment that I, I feel like in the back half of the film, a lot of the these moments for me in previous watches have just all kind of blurred into one. And I've not really seen the significance of these moments because I haven't mm-hmm. looked at them in this in this way before. It's just been like, okay, this is the part where they are really sort of closing in on on the shark. You know, pretty, you know, post Indianapolis to the end of the film, it's just kind of it's pretty full on in terms of in terms of action. You know, it's they get one barrel in, and then they you know then they get another one in, and then this is happening. They have to fix the orca, and then it's flooding, and it's it's really not long now until you know that the orca starts looking a, a very very bad way indeed but just yeah. picking out this particular bit and like really really drilling into it i think i've just i never would have taken this bit and been like oh yeah this is a great example of jules being a horror film but everything we've said and all the comparisons we've made with other with other slasher films and even just the sort of techniques that that they're using within this scene to make it feel that way i just think it it makes complete sense yeah, well, and I was thinking about something along something similar to those lines when they were, you know, the waves are coming up over them and they're all getting, you know, tossed with this this salt water um, mm. and having to scream their lines through it and pull on this uh, uh, this rope and like, yes, obviously there's some movie magic and they weren't in any real quote danger when this was happening but it also looks like it sucked Mm. to film this (laughs) and like it is you know jaws is a notoriously brutal hollywood production everyone knows the stories about you know when they were done filming spielberg speeding off in a boat and never coming back to martha's vineyard um like he just wanted to get out of there um but it reminded me a lot of you know how horror directors have kind of put their leading characters through increasingly more intense situations as far as that goes. Um, in particular, if you look at the film, the, specifically the horror filmography of Sam Raimi, um, like Evil Dead is one hour and 25 minutes long, so it's a perfect length movie. And uh, that movie just goes from the beginning basically mm-hmm. um and the the tagline for it was the evil dead the ultimate experience in grueling horror and that's what i think about every i mean it's the perfect way to describe the evil dead if you've ever seen it it is and not just because it's gruesome which it is or anything like that it is exhausting it is an exhausting hour and 25 minute movie mm-hmm. and um jaws it's it almost feels like he saw jaws and was like what if this last hour was a whole movie um (laughs) because the last hour is the most intense stuff that happens in the movie Mm. in particular probably the last 20 minutes yeah um so it's almost like what if the last 20 minutes was an entire (laughs) a whole ass movie and it works it's great it's a classic for a reason um and that's been a staple of all the the evil dead movies even the remake in 2013 is really long even though it's only it's probably around the same length of time but it feels like forever because there's constantly something happening and it's always like really intense and you can tell like the actors had a really hard time filming this Mm. um 
because they're covered in grime and corn syrup and fake blood, which is the corn syrup, I guess, and, you know, holding these weapons and, you know, fake sweat and probably some real sweat. And, like, it just looks like it sucked to film. And I was thinking about that, and I was thinking about how uh, Roy Scheider basically goes out of the frying pan into the fire between this and sorcerer <laughs> yeah they were tortured making that film basically oh, i don't know much about making sorcerer but you watch that movie and you're like oh no one had a good time making this yeah i i can't remember exactly and maybe we covered it in in more detail when i was on uncut gems talking about it but yeah william Friedkin didn't really care for making sure that actors had a nice time like there were people taken to the hospital like people like pretty much everyone making that film got sick just because of the the conditions and it wasn't kind of like oh no like that's gonna affect how you know the performances these people give it's like no make them suffer and then it will really look like they've suffered by the end of it (laughs) it's like well that's uh that's one way to do it yeah (laughs) yeah i mean Drag Me to Hell, uh, another Sam Raimi movie. Um, one of my favorite horror films of all time, if you haven't seen it. Uh, if you are a horror movie person and you haven't seen it. I know I know. there's no way Sarah will watch it, but <laughs> it, oh, it's, it's such a good movie. But I'm pretty sure Alison Lohman retired from acting because of how bad of a time she had making that movie. Uh, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you do, I mean, this... This was certainly a, a 70s thing in particular, I think, where it was just like, you just seem to be able to get away with just being a bit a bit shittier to, to people. But yeah. a lot of directors were just like, well, it gets it gets like a really great performance out of them. So oh, I've just I was just flicking through like the trivia page of Sorcerer because I knew there was something really specific um, and I've found it. Um so uh, it says, besides internal onset conflicts, William Friedkin said that approximately 50 people had to leave the film for either injury or gangrene, as well as food, oh as well as food poisoning and malaria. Uh, in the Friedkin connection, he added that almost half the crew went into the hospital or had to be sent home. Friedkin himself lost 50 pounds and was stricken with malaria, which was diagnosed after the film's premiere. <laughs> oh my God. After the premiere? Yeah. <laughs> uh, <laughs> that man is a a wild, wild character. <laughs> yeah. The mad lad Friedkin. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Ugh. I mean, I don't I know like the making of Jaws was like a, a a pretty traumatic experience for all concerned, but I I don't think it was quite that level of <laughs> I think at least people were safe I think it was just unpleasant and grueling yeah. and probably emotionally draining as well just to be at sea <laughs> basically and then all the problems as well of um of of the technical problems and the shark not working and and everything else but yeah if you if you get a minute to like read through some of the the stuff about making of sorcerer it is 
particularly wild. Like, do you know the thing about the the bridge? This is really going off on a tangent, but it's okay. <laughs> um, no, but that is a scene that every time I think about it, what what really freaks me out is like, how the hell did they make that? How like how do you even start to shoot something like this? Yeah. Okay. Well, <laughs> here we go. So they they built the they built the bridge. Obviously, like they weren't gonna you know use some fake thing. So it was like some random yeah. in the middle of the jungle. <laughs> That'll um, do. And this is why this is why it costs so much. So they um where they built it originally, I think, um, the river went like completely dry where they where they'd built it. So they basically had to scrap that bridge. So the bridge had to be torn down and a new location was found for it. The bridge then had to be rebuilt at a cost of another million. However, <laughs> the river that that one was built over began to dry up. The crew had to put a 24-hour guard around the bridge because the superstitious locals threatened to blow it up, believing it was the bridge and the intruders that had caused the river to become shallow. <laughs> so they were like, your bridge brought this voodoo curse to our land. Uh, uh, you are causing the river to dry up. But rather than being like, okay, like, you know, we've got to figure out something else, Friedkin is like, just tear it down, build another bridge. Absolute mad lad. <laughs> Um, there is oh gosh let me see oh let me find it let me find it let me find it okay whilst you're looking that up i've got another tidbit about the the bridge (laughs) so this was the the final the final bridge um where they were like we can't build another one so obviously the the water wasn't deep enough so they they use like helicopters and wind machines and like giant hoses to basically make that scene, the weather in that scene look as intense as it is. Um, the bridge itself mm-hmm. was so rickety that despite the safety precautions, the truck, often with an actor inside of it, slid off the side and into the shallow water five times during rehearsals and filming. The entire sequence took three months to shoot and Friedkin stated it was by far the most difficult sequence he ever filmed in his career. It's like, yep. <laughs> Like that truck really went into that river and they were like, it's okay, like dry it off, go again. Yeah. So speaking of notoriously difficult shoots, <laughs> um, have, I feel like I've talked about this before on the podcast, but Dr. Doolittle from 1968 mm-hmm. has, or 67, has a crazy production story due mostly in part to Rex Harrison's alcoholism and egotism. Uh, So, like, when they were filming on the island that the climax of the movie takes place, same thing. Tons of people got dysentery. Uh, Rex Harrison was mad that they were filming too much with the other lead of the film instead of him while they were on the island. So he took the boat, that because he rented a houseboat to live on while they were filming on the island. He moved his boat into the shot for like 12 hours and refused to move. So his, his, his modern-ass houseboat was in the back of the shot just ruining everything. So they couldn't film with him. Uh, his alcoholic girlfriend or wife at the time got really drunk one night and tried to help all the animals escape um, because she thought they were being too cruel to them. So she jumped off the houseboat, 
swam over to where they were keeping the aquatic animals and tried to uh, unlock it, unlock the gate so that they could swim out in the ocean. Uh, and if you haven't seen Dr. Doolittle, which you shouldn't, it's very bad. <laughs> it, there's at the end of the film, he rides away on this giant pink snail. Well, <laughs> um, the the snail prop was stoned and threatened to be destroyed by the locals because the previous year they had experienced a massive disease outbreak caused by snails on the island, and they thought it was an insult to the suffering that they had endured the previous year. Oh, no. Also, the... Uh, the sand that was on the beach, they didn't like it, so they brought in sand from another part of the island. Well, when they brought that in, it brought in a bunch of sand termites, and everyone got bitten by the sand termites. <laughs> there were not sand termites on that part of the island before. Um, yeah. Uh, if you want to know more about the troubled production history of Dr. Doolittle, you should read the excellent Mark Harris book, Pictures at a Revolution. Uh if you like filmmaking in general, because it looks at the five best picture nominees of 1968 um, and just like their production histories, it's really great. But the Dr. Doolittle stuff is by far the most buck wild shit in the book because you're like, <laughs> it's Dr. Doolittle. Like, what are yeah. we talking about here? Yeah, I'm I'm definitely going to look into that because I'm really obsessed with films that have like a particularly chaotic sort of behind the scenes story to them maybe that's why i love jaws so much uh but that does sound particularly insane and dr do this as well <laughs> yeah like well and the other thing too is like with these notoriously you know brutal shoots like sorcerer and dr doolittle at least here they get to go stay in a hotel or whatever on martha's vineyard like it could be mm. worse you know mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I mean, I'm not saying that like Spielberg wasn't right to like you know just jettison off uh, <laughs> as they wrap pr production with a middle finger in the air, but it also is like, well, I I want to see I want to hear Roy Scheider talk about like going from Jaws into Sorcerer and being like, well, hell, I, mm -hmm. this you know Jaws well, is a walk in the park compared to whatever this is whatever it, happened here. <laughs> It's funny you should say that because I've, I've found in a 1977 interview for the New York Times, Roy Scheider said that shooting the film, as in Sorcerer, made Jaws look like a picnic. Um, he mentioned yeah. that the, <laughs> the stuntmen were unhappy because of the fact the leading actors performed their own stunts. So in a lot of the scenes in Sorcerer, which if you've seen, there's a lot of crazy stuff that happens in that film, um, added that the scene involving crossing the, the rope bridge, which we talked about, is what really happened mm -hmm. uh and the scene was the most perilous sequence he has ever taken part in so you already said mj that that sequence uh just fills you with anxiety so maybe yeah. the next time you watch sorcerer you can just be like they really did that <laughs> <Cool>. yeah <laughs> that just gave me a shiver just thinking about it honestly <laughs> yeah because like the thing oh. about that film is, and we won't make this sorcerer cast. There's a time and a place for that, but um, it's I've seen that film what three, four times. Like not as many times comparatively to to Jaws, but every time yeah. I watch it, 
it still has the same effect on me and I really I don't know how many times I can watch Sorcerer before it stops having that effect on me like when I watch that scene on the on the bridge I am watching it through my fingers I am watching it like chewing down my fingernails because it's so stressful and so intense and it's just like yeah I (laughs) that it's a truly great film I think to be able to to get that reaction from you every time you watch it and I mean to to bring this back to Jaws it's yes I'm getting something new out of Jaws every single time I watch it but I've seen that film you know wouldn't even like to guess how many times and I still watch it and it gets everything out of me that that film is meant to get out of you like the bits that make you jump make you jump the bits that make you laugh make you laugh it's just like it never loses its power I think yeah um i mean freaking does that i've only seen the exorcist twice but also a notoriously brutal uh uh production mm. um uh you know I- including religious controversies um mm. but it, that movie is still scary and it's still very <laughs> scary um so i mean there's i feel like there is something to be said for it but there is something to be said for like hey make sure everyone's safe please um <laughs> And I tend to get like, there does seem to be a line that I'm willing to to deal with dumb shit like that from directors where it's like, Mm -hmm. uh, like, I don't like The Revenant. Um, I don't think it's a particularly good movie. And one of the reasons is because they... The press tour for that movie is they were just like, we did all of this for real. And it's like, okay, well, you made a documentary then. Like, I don't, what do you mean we did all of this for real? Like, we, like, oh yeah, you know, Leo like actually ate that liver. And it's like, why? He didn't need to. No one, no one, no one needs to make you do that. Also, at what point do you stop acting? You know, at least with uh, with like something like The Exorcist, I can be like, okay, you weren't possessed by a real demon, you know. Mm. But <laughs> with something like The Revenant, it's just so like navel gazing and up its own ass. Like it's, I don't know. I not to make it The Revenant rant, but there is like that. Str- I understand the striving for realism when you're making a film, uh, but also at the same time. I feel like it can go a bridge too far where one, you're either compromising the safety of your actors or two, they're just doing unnecessary things that no one cares about. (laughs) Like, Mm. I don't care. I don't care that Leo cut open a real deer and crawled inside it. Just that's not a real Tauntaun in Empire Strikes Back. And it's just as effective. (laughs) Hashtag not a real Tauntaun. Yeah, I I get what you I I get what you're saying. I think that there's like there's a difference between the when it is like an actor doing their own stunts, for example, and like Tom Cruise, you know, does this. He like insists on kind of like being on the side of a plane and in these like really insanely dangerous situations, and you do get that sense of very very real danger that I think adds something to to those those particular scenes and I think it it works Mm -hmm. for those films and it it works in Sorcerer because I mean I I until I read about it I never once thought that that was actually the 
the actors like driving across that bridge but like turns out it it, it was <laughs> they just didn't feel the need to use stunt doubles at all but then that you do get that then very real palpable sense of danger that those people are in that very dangerous scenario and obviously even if it is some people doing that they are putting themselves in danger to get those kind of great shots so shout out to those guys because i couldn't do it but when it comes to the like like what you're saying about the revenant i think i like that film a bit more than than you do but i get what you're saying the whole like he really ate a uh whatever and it's like okay but he uh, what did that add to it like that could have been a prop one that tasted like a delicious chicken and we wouldn't have known any different like there wasn't a, a i don't gain anything from that knowing that that was a real animal that he like cut open and ate and crawled inside like I, that, that doesn't add anything to it <laughs> so you know that's the one that won leo his oscar finally and it's like okay well how much acting did he actually do you know like uh, should have won it for the departed should have won it for what's eating gilbert grape should have won it yep. for literally every other film that he had been in prior to that yep yeah yep <sighs> for Wolf of Wall Street. Um, mm. I was simultaneously delighted that he had won an Oscar because he had finally won an Oscar and I felt like it had just been yeah. this big thing that the world would never know peace until he had won his Oscar. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, how wrong we were. Um, but <laughs> also just like why that, why that film, why that performance, like when there were so many other worthy mm -hmm. or like worthier performances it did feel a bit kind of like, well, we got to give it to him now. Like he, he ate a real like buffalo liver or whatever it was. I don't know. Yeah. So we've, we've got to give it to him because he went through all of that. And it's just like, give it to him because he's a really great actor who puts in a really great performance in literally every single film he's in. Even that don't look up garbage. He is the best thing about that and still puts in a great performance. Like reward him for the best performance, not just because he like, put himself through all of that stuff yeah well and then it you know this is shooting off i guess into <laughs> in uh a uh, 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 rant against the academy but like at what point does it not matter that like bruce campbell went through all this on evil dead does it not matter that allison Loman went through all this on you know drag me to hell for their mm -hmm. performances like by and large horror movies put their their stars through a lot of similar stuff. Granted, it's mainly corn syrup, um, but it, they're largely ignored by the Academy. So what mm. makes that like that performance more worthy when it's essentially a horror movie performance, like just the, the brutality of it and all the like gross things on him. Mm. You could see that in, you could start basically any horror movie right now and see the same shit that happens in the rabbit, you know? Mm -hmm. And, uh, for whatever reason that that is not deemed worthy enough by uh the academy to be even considered for awards performances uh even though they're like apparently one of the one of the, the stress tests for that is did you do a bunch of gross shit yes okay you're nominated <laughs> yeah i mean we can we can get into the the lack of recognition for horror generally in in the academy because i think that's a whole that's a whole other thing but in terms of like recognizing 
performances and stuff it just seems like so often they're overlooked I mean I've not seen it but like Tony Collette wasn't nominated for Hereditary is that right oh, that was yeah. a thing that people mm-hmm, were mad mm-hmm. about yeah mm-hmm. <laughs> without going off on a huge tangent about why these things don't get recognition they should do but yeah I mean was were, were any of the were any of the 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 um performances in Jaws nominated um i'm just going to check i don't think so um because yeah it truly (laughs) truly insane so yeah it had four nominations best sound best film editing best music best picture and it won three out of those four didn't win picture um so yeah not a single recognition in terms of of acting but obviously we praise (laughs) the performances and I think if it was now, particularly if the the cast were like put through all the stuff that that they were in Jaws, if, they, if this came out now, then they they probably would at least get a nomination. I think, but mm-hmm. yeah, no uh, no nominations, no wins in in acting, which is mad. <laughs> yeah, absolutely crazy. Mm-hmm. Um, okay, to bring it back to the scene, did you have anything else about the scene? <laughs> No, I will say that uh, just uh, sliding down Jaws Awards page on IMDb that uh, Richard Dreyfuss did get a BAFTA nomination for Best Actor. So mm-hmm. we love to see it. He didn't win, but happy for him. <laughs> yep. Um, yeah. Uh, do you have anything to plug? Um, I Yes, I do. Uh, so who knows when this episode will go out, but at some point you will hear this uh, and that will be fine because my writing hasn't gone anywhere it's there all the time but i have done some really meaty pieces for looper recently um i did the 60 best disney characters and when Mm. i tell you that took me many hours mostly in agonizing over my list because i didn't know what order to put them in um and deciding how much of it could be my personal picks and also the popular picks (laughs) i probably yeah a lot of time went into that so it'd be really great if people could go and check that out if you love disney uh in particular and i'm also i'm working on something about the 50 best space movies and that is space not sci-fi oh. and when i tell you i found it really difficult to uh find 50 films that are space and not sci-fi but uh, i did it so uh that will go out at some point uh when i finished (laughs) writing it slash started writing it but you can find all of my uh stuff that i write for looper um on my author page um looper.com forward slash author forward slash sarah buttery and there's everything that i've written on there including those two um have you been keeping up with the josh spiegel disney characters yes the uh um the bracket thing Mm -hmm. yes yep the character that's looking like it will win is what I put at number one on the list. So I feel vindicated. <laughs> oh, okay. Got it. um, it's not finished yeah, yet, but <laughs> of recording, it's down to the final four, um, which is Donald Duck, Belle, the genie and Wally. So mm-hmm. uh, did you include Pixar characters in 
No, I didn't. And I'm really, I'm really glad they just let me do Disney animated because I think I would probably still be writing it like a week past my deadline. (laughs) It was Pixar as well. You're like, I can't do it. I can't choose. No one can make me. (laughs) Yeah. I assume the character that is looking like it's going to win is the big blue one himself. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Number one on my list. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, of course it is. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. One of the all-time great performances, full stop. Uh, mm-hmm. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. Animation or otherwise, he's so fucking good in that movie. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I was watching in in my research. There's like a bunch of um, say outtakes, but it's just like Robin Williams just ad libbing stuff for Genie, and I was like crying, laughing. It's so funny. Like all, all the stuff that's in the film is fantastic, and incredible and that's why genie is the best disney character but all of the stuff that didn't make the cut is just brilliant so you i you can probably find clips and stuff on youtube as as where i was watching it but all of the like outtakes and stuff that they didn't use they had like hours and hours of material (laughs) because he would just go they would just put a mic in front of him and be like do your thing and he did it better than anyone else (laughs) Yeah, well, and he's he's credited as a writer on the movie because of that, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. That's right. Yeah, because so much of it was was him. I think I'd love to read like the script and see like how much of it is what is said. I think it's like the 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 vague gist of it, and then everything else is is just him. It's you can tell. I think if you know like his comedy well enough and his style, like improv is is his thing. It's great that. Disney just kind of like allowed I think when you have a person like that playing a character you're just like there's a reason why you've cast that person so it's just like let them be funny we'll figure out everything else around it yeah. and then they screwed him hard mm-hmm. uh, <laughs> yeah um I'm sure did you get into that on your Disney podcast we did yeah yeah, went okay. very, very in-depth on all of that. <laughs> he got, man, he got so screwed on that. Mm-hmm. Like, it's... Uh, Next time. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> anyway, uh, I, as of day of recording tonight, I am recording my appearance on The Bond We Share, which is a James Bond podcast um, hosted by some online friends of mine. Um, go give them a follow. They are very good, and they... Um, just uh yeah they need a podcast lift so mm-hmm. uh head that way we're talking about moonraker because it heavily features jaws not that one mm-hmm. um so that's why they reached out to me they said hey do you want to come on for moonraker get it because jaws <laughs> um and i said yes absolutely because james bond also goes to space and uses a laser in that movie mm-hmm. um <laughs> And I also get to talk about the fact that uh, Richard Keel, the man who plays Jaws in the James Bond franchise, owned and operated uh, several car dealerships in my hometown of Bakersfield, California. So there's a weird local connection I have to the man. <laughs> when you told me that, I almost didn't believe it. But I was like, I've got no reason not to accept this as absolute truth. <laughs> he would... Um, once he, he, would, he lived about an hour and a half north in a town called Fresno, mm. um, and he had in Fresno as well. But a couple times a year, he would do uh, like signings at um, 
at the the auto shopper is what it was called in mm. uh in big and uh yeah uh, you might also recognize richard keel from uh happy gilmore he's the big guy who gets like the nail in his head the, i think he's like a neighbor um so yep richard keel weirdly connected to my hometown <laughs> uh, so i get to talk about that and the james bond space laser movie um which is very dumb and roger moore is very old in that movie <laughs> and also in space <laughs> And also in space. <laughs> um, not the craziest thing to happen in a James Bond movie, oddly <laughs> enough. My my argument is that the craziest thing to happen in a James Bond movie is in The Man with a Golden Gun, wherein Christopher Lee's villain, his third nipple is a major plot point. <laughs> That's literally the only thing I remember about that film, which I think says it all. <laughs> yep. The only thing most people remember about that movie because it's insane. Mm -hmm. Is that there's a mirror like, room at some point? Is that a thing? Uh -huh. Yep. 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 Okay. Yeah, that's true. That, yeah, I think there's another laser he's got to like use to diffuse, but it's not a space laser. Okay. Yep. <laughs> It also has an instrumental theme song, which was not par for the course at that time uh, in the Bond franchise. <laughs> I know that. Um, anyway. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so there's that. Uh, Cobra Kai season four episode of Real Perspective, I think is out now. It should be. It was recorded this past weekend. And I think Mike is doing the editing on that. That's R-E-E-L perspective. Um yeah, it's uh, very stupid and very good, uh, both the show and the podcast. Um, and uh, yeah, check that out wherever pods are casted. Um, I think that's it as far as stuff to plug for me goes. I have some, I have kind of a lot of appearances happening this year, which is exciting, but also kind of daunting because it's a lot of movie watching. But um, you'll be updated on those uh, as they come down the line. Um, Yums. Harley still wants your yums. I will let him explain that now. Thanks very much, MJ. Hi, Harley here from the Fundamentals podcast. So what is this all about, the yums? For those of you who don't know, it's really simple. I was on an episode of this wonderful podcast a while back, and during which we got a little bit silly and we came up with a parody song idea uh, that's called Eat Somebody based off the song Use Somebody by Kings of Leon. And for some reason, I've decided to go ahead and try and create this song. I am in the process of sorting it and mixing it as we speak. But the one thing that I need to make it extra special is your help, dear listener. All I need is for you to send me you singing the words, yum. It's that simple. And you just need to hit these notes. Now that's just a simple MIDI keyboard example of what I'm after. It's uh, it's in the key of C, so those are the notes that I'm after. But if you're listening to this and you feel a bit intimidated by that, you think, I'm not sure if I can get that exactly right, don't stress too much. You can always contact me and I can send you that little file uh, as something to sing against. Or if you just want to go for it and you're not sure where you're hitting your notes, again, don't stress about it. I have had all sorts of entries and I've got ways of editing that and mixing it all together. The important thing is, I just want you guys to have fun. 
And the more people that do it, the better this is going to sound. So for more details on where to send me the ums, well, I'll hand back over to MJ. And you can send those to fandommentalspod at yahoo.com. That's F-A-N-D-O-M-E-N-T-A-L-S-P-O-D at yahoo.com. Um, yeah, and and send those his way. Uh, shout out to him for working on that. The other things I have on a script, even though we plug them every week and I can't find it now. Here we go. Uh, our social media presence, if you want to find us on uh, social media, you can find the show at Jaws for a Minute on Twitter. You can also find the show on Instagram under that same uh, uh, handle, at Jaws for a Minute. Um, if you want to follow our personal pages on Twitter, we are at Sarah Buttery. That's S-A-R-A-H-B-U-D-D-E-R-Y and at MJ Smith 891 um, if you have no social media but still want to contact the show, we have uh, an email address you can use. It's jawsforaminute at gmail.com. Um, so you can drop us a line there. If you want to support the show, the easiest way to do it is to rate, review, subscribe on Apple, Spotify, wherever you do that. Spotify allows ratings now, so give us a rating there. Um, we appreciate it, and it's obviously it's free to you. Um if you want to support us monetarily, uh, you can find links to do that in our link tree on both our Twitter and our Instagram, or pardon me, Instagram bios. Uh, <laughs> you can purchase some merch through TeePublic and Redbubble. Uh, we have two designs up there, which were designed by Alex, uh, who, if you like his work, you can follow him at HexGhosts on Twitter. Um, you can purchase our theme song which was performed by Kristen Falls. Uh, you can find the link to her Bandcamp either through our bio or through her bio on Instagram at Kristen Falls Music. It's K-R-I-S-T-E-N, not I-N. Um, if you want to just drop us a, uh, uh, a donation because you like us, um, you can support our coffee page for $3.00. Um, and if you do that, you'll get a shout out on the show. And if you are a first time donator, you will be a donor donator. Uh, if you're a first time donor, um, you can, uh, you will be entered to win a piece of merch once we hit a certain donation, um, goal. So a $3 minimum, uh, could get you a potentially $20 piece of merch. Um, but yeah, I think that's all we have for this week. Uh, whatever this week is, since uh, I do all the editing and I cannot do that right now. <laughs> um, but uh, until next time, whenever that is, it's Jaws O'Clock Summer.